All right, we are back. Episode two. Drew, how's it going? Uh, all right, we're restarting. I thought you were doing a light intro. It was a light intro. Okay, that I thought you were going to say a little bit more than that. All right. All right, we're back. Stepping up, second episode of the Launch Angle Pod. Um, back with Drew and James here. Drew, how's it going? What's what's new with you? How's your week going? Pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, we anticipated that we would probably have this second episode out by now, but that uh, completely honor our commitment to getting the podcast out weekly, but I think we're in a, a better spot here uh, going forward. So hopefully we can do this a little bit more consistently. Um, yeah, week's going pretty well, starting to get into a little bit more of a groove here back up in Pennsylvania. Um, the hurricanes hit the area that I was working pretty hard. So um, yeah, I had to evacuate for that. It made a landfall pretty close to where I work and where I was living um, for the summer and into the fall. So yeah, back up here and kind of getting into a, a groove once again during our, uh, during our off season. Right. Maybe it helps to explain a little, I don't know if we ever went into what exactly you do in the first episode. So it might be yeah. helpful context. Yeah. So this past summer uh, I graduated from a master's in nutrition, um, sports nutrition, uh, June 10th. So I started my first day of work with the Tampa Bay Rays June 15th as a sports dietitian, um, not working for the MLB team. Uh, I'm working with their rookie level team, as well as their academy down in the Dominican Republic. So help those guys out. Um, it's pretty uh, Latin American heavy population. So um, a lot of Spanish there, uh, just doing a lot of education and um, counseling with the guys one-on-one -on -one. right yeah and the hurricane hit pretty close to the um, the facilities down there and also it's the off season so that's why you're back up in yeah. Pennsylvania right so it was only about 10 or 10 days or two weeks um, early that I ended up coming up but yeah a little bit early nonetheless uh, things were going well down there um, it's kind of like a second spring training in a way, the instructional camp that we had. Uh, it was going from September 7th to October 7th, uh, really focused on individual attention with the athletes. So it's kind of an exciting time of year in terms of nutrition because it's not as many games and you can really hone in with the athletes on their individual nutritional goals and off-season goals. Um, that stuff will just kind of have to happen remotely now. So all good. Just kind of change gears a little bit. Right. Yeah. What it's, it's interesting actually to think about how sports has an off season and kind of what that looks like for baseball, kind of that more um, individual and close up approach for guys. Do you have an off season plan for yourself? or just kind of learning new things or anything like that? Have you, have you thought about approaching your career like that? It's kind of interesting yeah. uh, just to work in sports because you do have that natural just built-in off-season 
so you can kind of at least what I would think build some some learning plans around that yeah so there's kind of an off season overall if you think about uh, major and minor leagues but um, with the population that I work with there's a lot of rehabbing athletes uh, rehabbing back from injuries Um, so they kind of go all year round at our complex and then um, there's also the Dominican Republic Academy which I had mentioned where a lot of the the players will go back and train down there. So that kind of becomes like an extended in-person opportunity for them to train uh, during the off season. So we'll make a trip or two down there, just kind of check in with those guys. Um, so it's kind of like a, definitely a light season. Um, we're not doing as much, but yeah, definitely. There's a, definitely some personal plans and progress um, to try to, grow some skills, like uh, improve my Spanish a little bit more. That's one thing I'm really focusing on. And then really just having more of a kind of slow and steady morning routine. I usually start work at about 6.30 or 7 a.m. during the year when I'm down in Florida. So it's kind of been nice to completely design my day and, uh, you know, ease into it a little bit, get some reading done, get some Spanish lessons in, um, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I would say those are the two big things. Just read a little bit more and tackle the Spanish, kind of try to put an exclamation mark on that and uh, make that even stronger of a skill. Nice. Yeah. What are you, what are you reading right now? Do you have an off season reading plan at all or anything that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'm actually reading a book called Upstream. Um, I'm not sure exactly who the author is. I think it might have been Dan Heath, potentially. Um, but that's been a really good book so far. And then kind of in conjunction with that, I started doing this uh, or reading this textbook. It's uh, through the NSCA, which is the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And so they have a certification, which is the Strength and Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist, which is kind of like the gold standard for strength conditioning in um, college and professional. But they actually just came out with a new certification in sports science. So I got that uh, textbook for that certification yesterday, and I've been actually really enjoying it. It's uh, super all-encompassing between nutrition as well as uh, like skill acquisition and a lot of data and technology kind of chapters. So um, it's kind of a grab bag of different things, but I think it's kind of just like a, uh, a generalist manual to kind of working in performance science, which is uh, super useful. Yeah, totally. No, that sounds really useful. That's something I've thought about doing more is buying and reading textbooks. It's one of those things you forget yeah. about after you forget about it after high school or college, but you know, you can get, you can get textbooks on Amazon, you know, used for 30, 40 bucks. Uh, maybe, you know, sometimes they're more expensive than that. They can rent, they can get pretty expensive, but it is a great way, especially if you're more of a text-based learner. Like I definitely am more of a text-based learner. That is something I've been meaning to do more because it's like you know you don't have to go fishing for all these different things there's probably a textbook about whatever you're looking 
to learn with a lot of practical yeah. information in it. So Definitely. that's that's something I think people forget about. Yeah, I and think I forget about especially in uh, performance science or nutrition. Uh, I would say because one of the big downsides is, you know, you're not going to read the best thing um, in nutrition or performance science in kind of one of those self-helpy books that you see featured um, at the front of Barnes and Nobles, right? Um, unfortunately, nutrition, the good stuff is so either nuanced or uh, basic that it's not going to become a New York Times bestseller. So I think especially with subjects like that, that are more science heavy, uh, going to like the, you always say this, kind of like the source material um, or secondary materials even better. Um, and I'm, you know, not a huge fan of reading journal articles. So it's kind of nice to see a bunch of journal articles that are distilled down into a textbook that, you know, is re is read a little bit more like a book instead of like a, a one-off study. So yeah, it's, it's good. Definitely for, uh, kind of a summary. That's a little bit more, I guess, narrative based in a way. Yeah, for sure. Especially with stuff related to maybe less so exercise, definitely more so uh, nutrition. Those, yeah, those New York Times bestseller books or the pop science books or, and I, I don't have, I don't even have that much to go, to go off saying this, but it's just become a thing for me is as a rule, I just try not to read any of them. They can be helpful to skim and just kind of see what the arguments are for different things. But I think what people have to realize is by the time those books come out, it's, it's, they've been in writing for multiple years in the process of being written for multiple years, the science has changed. And there's also a profit motive with selling a book. Right. If you're, you know, a doctor or some sort of a health professional who has some sort of stance to gain on it. It's such an interesting thing because if you write a book about one way of eating, just by the incentive there is, I feel, to just keep, to hold that line in your future work. Right. I don't know. Maybe people would, would, maybe people would like it if, you know, you had somebody who one, one year was writing all about why the vegan diet is the way to go. And then a couple of years later came out with a book just that was titled, I, I was wrong. And, and all these right, things yeah. are wrong in my last, not saying a vegan diet is wrong, just illustrating a point here. I don't know. I don't know if that's ever even happened or if it would ever yeah. happen, but also you have incentives from publishers and things like that. You know, so that's, yeah. And I think, I think also just, you know, as somebody in the nutrition field, what people don't really realize with going to a dietitian or nutritionist is, you know, if the person's experienced, generally they're not going to tell you to eat a certain type of diet like hey you should follow a low carb diet keto diet vegan diet um even you know mediterranean diet in the research we know is um one of the best diets or even like a, a dash diet that you'd have for hypertension we know that these things are great in the research but i'm never really gonna just say hey i think you should unless it's a, a medical issue i'm never gonna say yeah you should just strictly adhere to the mediterranean diet right? Like, especially with my population, you know, um, I'm not going to tell a bunch of Latin American guys, 
you know, from the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, just like follow this diet that is not, you know, um, it's not in line with your culture, right? You're not familiar with some of these things that um, some of these foods growing up, right? So it's a lot more of an individualized approach. It's not just a cookie cutter, one size fits all um, kind of strategy. So yeah, it's really what's best for the individual at the end of the day anyway. So um, it's not really useful for me to read that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've said this before. I don't think we'll ever, I think we'll look back. I've said this to you just in private conversation, but I think we'll look back on lots of these diets and people who've made whole careers espousing one narrow way of, of eating as really just it's just a blunt instrument for telling people how to eat. I think we will get to a point where you can use somebody's genetics to actually tell them what diet would be best for them and a range of other factors too. I mean, um, obviously muscle mask, muscle mass plays a big role in uh, just how much glucose you can, you can take on in any one meal. So, Mm -hmm. so many different factors. And I think, for for both of us, it's it's a pet peeve when it that stuff gets boiled down into you know one almost dogmatic approach to to doing it, which is a bit yeah. of an issue. I think when you go one size fits all, it's you're not going to get met with as many wait but why questions. You know, it's you need less attention span on the behalf of the person that you're providing it to um when you're making the recommendation right like you're gonna need a large attention span if i'm going to like a one-on-one counseling session that's an hour for all those why questions if you're having a more nuanced approach um you know and it's also the direction of information right like if you're writing a book that's a one-way direction of information right i'm just writing a book that somebody's going to take and they can't really ask you questions unless they, you know, send you an email or something. So a one size fits all approach is a little bit more conducive. But um, in a counseling session, there is like a two way flow of information. So people can ask those why questions and things can be a little bit more individually tailored. So I think that kind of factors in here as well. That makes yeah, sense. What you almost need what you almost need for a nutrition book is a choose your own adventure book in a sense. Yeah, right. Remember right. those. That would actually be a really cool concept to have a, a digital book, you know, something online where you could click through links and actually and maybe see like frequently asked questions, a different approach and have, have somebody who's actually uh, keeping up with and, and constantly updating it. That would actually be the best way to publish any type of, mass media mass market nutrition book honestly yeah because yeah it's so much that those studies change and another issue i i too always have with um the nutrition books or kind of any pop science book for that matter is you know so so many of the 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 studies cited number one nobody's ever going to go actually look at they're just going to take the author's interpretation as a fact and Two, most people don't really have the training to read a scientific article and, and assess it, you know, the different methodologies and, and whether, you know, there was any bias or conflicts of interest. 
the population it's done in it's done in animal yeah, models all these different things so yeah it's just a, a general a general word of caution i guess about about pop science and and other things to consider because the flip side of that is those kind of books can become actually useful if you do take the time to learn how to evaluate a scientific study and and want to go deeper Th those books can probably be a great jumping off point for somebody who's so inclined to to do that sort of thing yeah no i would definitely agree um yeah i think it's just um i see i've seen a diagram and we don't even really have show notes but maybe we can make show notes for this podcast but uh chris bailey he has this book called the productivity project um, which kind of is, is a little bit self-healthy, obviously, um, but it's kind of some more applied strategies um, for being a little bit more productive. And he has this really good diagram, and it's kind of just talking about the trade-off between how much fun you have while reading something and how informative it is, right? Like, mm. Twitter can be really fun, but it can be the lowest level of good information possible. So that's at one end of the spectrum. While a journal article can be on the complete opposite end, it's a very dry, right? It has, it's not super fun to read, but it's very informative. And I'd say textbook is kind of around there. Um, but another one that I know that he kind of said is in the middle is uh, TED Talks. And that's another interesting one where I feel like it's usually about one topic, it's 20 minutes long, and it's not super nuanced. Um, I'm just curious, do you watch TED Talks and what's, what are kind of your general thoughts on them? Yeah, I mean, I've obviously watched TED Talks in the past. I don't, they're not really something I seek out when trying to learn anything new or just because I'm curious. Maybe I should, but um, a quick point though on, on journal articles not being fun to read. There, there is, I have seen people say that Part, part of the reason journal articles aren't fun to read is because there's also a bit of uh, in, internally in, in academia and, and in research, you also, you're writing for a very narrow group. You're, you're writing for, you know, most of the time your colleagues and people in your field and, and the journals that you're publishing in. And it's, it's right. a lot of journals don't have a very wide readership anyway. It's all people who have very high levels of knowledge of, of specific domain knowledge so they can you can get away with a lot of jargon and i've 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 heard people say like that's because of the readership of journals it propagates more jargon but there's no real reason why journals can't be written in a more lay person friendly way mm, um right i mean i'm sure there is a reason but you know, it's it's something that I guess could you know could happen, but uh, probably won't. But it'd probably be for the greater good if it was. Um, yeah. Or or if you know maybe we get someday where there's some like AI that can just do that for us. You can just feed a journal article and it'll just tell you everything in plain English. Would be pretty cool. But um, but no, I don't really seek out TED talks. Mostly podcasts and mostly podcasts and books and articles. I'm a big fan of, I have a Kindle and Chrome. There's a great Chrome extension called Send to Kindle, where if you're on any article online, you can click this button and it'll format the article to read on Kindle and you send it directly to your Kindle. So then the next time you connect your Kindle to Wi-Fi, 
it'll download the article. So I'll do that when I come across anything that takes longer to read than like a minute or two on a screen because mm -hmm. I, I hate reading on the computer. So that's been a great way to ingest more long form articles. And I've actually actually sent a few research articles to myself just today, actually one about senescent cells and exercise, which was pretty interesting. Wow. And have you read that one yet? Or have you not gotten around to it yet? I've, I've started to read it. Uh, basically, the argument is that basically where, where we're still at is, is exercise is still the best treatment for clearing senescent cells over pretty much any drug that we have or that we have in the pipeline. So um, it's just about the efficacy of, of exercise to uh, reduce the kind of some of the byproducts of, of aging that cause us to age faster, which is that's what a senescent cell is. It's kind of a zombie dead cell that doesn't really contribute much and leads to downstream inflammation and other um, negative health promoting signals in the body. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty in-depth. Um, where have you kind of learned about that, those senescent cells and kind of um, who's kind of a go-to person on that in terms of reading more about that if people want to look into it? Yeah, um, well, yeah, Peter Atia is probably my, my go-to for what I still learn anything health related he's who i learn anything health related from still so dr peter atia he's an md he's got a great podcast called the drive he's all about longevity and aging he talks about i'm, I'm sure senescent cells come up every other podcast for him right. you to put out a, a, a twitter video talking about this too how uh exercise is still the best intervention we have for aging. So he's probably my, my go-to on that. I have found some other people on, on Twitter lately who, who post some, some pretty good stuff. Um, I don't know what exactly their credentials are, who they really are, but um, it's led me to, to some interesting journal articles. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, I think you told me something pretty interesting about his take on nutrition uh, recently. Do you want to kind of go into that? I know he was really big into nutrition at one point and he's kind of flipped in a way or become a little bit nuanced with his, his thought process. Do you want to go into that a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, I think he's always been very nuanced, but he, he had a recent podcast with um, Matt Caberlane, who's a, who's a PhD. And basically what he said, what Peter Tia said in that episode was that, Pretty much every year he gets less and less sure about what to believe on the nutrition science front. And there's many reasons for that. Just broad strokes, it's for people who don't know, it, nutrition is a very difficult field to conduct research in because if you think about it, the gold standard for research is, you know, a randomized double-blind clinical control study. So, you know, you take uh take a sample, you grab two random groups, you grab two groups of, of a random, random sampling. You have uh, one treatment group, one control group. The people conducting the research don't know who is which group. Um, the people in the research groups don't know who is which group. They don't know who's getting the treatment, who's getting the placebo. And then you control for as many variables as possible. And so you can just isolate the treatment effect 
or the potential treatment effect. And then you follow those people for a certain amount of time. That's, you know, easy enough to do with a drug where you just have this one molecule and maybe you have patients in, in a hospital where you can control things like their energy expenditure, what they're eating during the day or other treatments they get, other things that go into their body. Um, but if, if you're just talking about nutrition, it's, it's extremely difficult to do because you realistically can't take two significantly sized random groups of people and just lock them away in a lab for you know many numbers of years and watch how a specific diet impacts their life or doesn't impact their their life and then yeah, become pretty inhumane yeah it'd be completely inhumane completely Im impossible um so what nutrition research relies on very heavily is a lot of surveys and kind of retrospective studies where people are you know recalling what they ate they're entering things into a food journal um, which people tend to just naturally be be biased about. Most people yeah. you know, will un underreport what they ate. You know, they, they may forget what they ate, all these things. Right, it's just, it's so, the Hawthorne, Hawthorne effect. When people know that they're being watched, they change their behavior. Uh, yeah. And that and, usually and, leads to underreporting of portion sizes or, um, you know, overreporting of portion sizes of things that are air quotes healthy ingredients versus unhealthy ingredients and yeah it can become you know pretty difficult to track and also yeah. a lot of these uh materials can rely on memory so like a food frequency questionnaire exactly. um, it's really ask, asking you in the last three months uh how many times have you had certain ingredients right um so you know especially if you go to a restaurant even like you don't know when certain ingredients are being used um you know Restaurants love to throw in extra salt and butter that you might not even realize in the dish. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, messiness that comes into play with uh, nutrition. Yeah, um, and yeah, and so that's why. Just for people who don't know, it, it's it's <laughs> these, these are the reasons you need to just be have you know be a little bit wary about sensational headlines about this nutrition thing or that. And that's, I mean, you, and then we're not even talking about, you know, different genes and body composition and all this other right. stuff that, that, that factors in. So, yeah. Anyway. Are there any, are there any pillars for you that you kind of stick to in terms of nutrition? Like, obviously you're not focusing on every last tiny thing, but are there any, you know, three or five kind of main things that you focus on in any given day? Yeah. So I keep it very simple and I just focus on eating as much whole foods as I can and not, not the store whole foods, but whole foods, foods that have been, you know, unadulterated foods that are not processed. So your vegetables, your fruits, nuts, legumes, seeds, um, meats, you know, when I buy meat, obviously I try to go antibiotic free, totally organic. Uh, if it's beef, grass fed, if it's, you know, chicken, a normal wild, you know, what they'd eat um, in a wild type feed. Same thing with goes for fish. Um, and so, yeah, and you, I mean, you can make so many uh, really delicious things with, with whole foods. It's, I think, I think it's 
that might be more of the trick to getting to eating healthier for a lot of people is just learning how to cook these types of foods. Right. Um, because once you learn that, I mean, that you can make just incredible dishes with with nothing more than whole foods and, and some spices. So, so yeah, I, I stick to whole foods and I try to stick to a pretty Mediterranean diet. And I'm also just kind of betting on being right that, you know, one day we will discover that a person's genes do play a big role in what they should be eating. And we'll probably have gene specific or kind of, uh, gene, yeah, gene background specific um, diets. And mm -hmm. I happen to be of mostly Mediterranean descent. So I just feel pretty safe sticking to a Mediterranean <laughs> diet. It also just tastes right. great. I enjoy it. Um, but yeah, that's, Which is that's a huge, huge aspect to not even just brush over to like, you know, you can just adhere to something that tastes really good, like a dietary pattern that tastes really good. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be Mediterranean. Um, you know, a lot of the athletes that I work with or even general population people, it's not me being the food police and forcing them to um, eat different things. You know, obviously that's a little bit different if they don't like any fruits or vegetables, you know, then we need to start dealing with that pickiness and trying certain things. But, you know, if you only like three or five vegetables, like, great, let's just start there and get some wins by just rotating through those vegetables. So um, I think that, when it comes to nutrition and even exercise, people really try to fight an uphill battle with themselves instead of kind of just working with themselves and kind of riding that motivational wave. So, um, yeah, I would definitely think that uh, just stop trying to fight yourself. Your nutrition can definitely improve. But, you know, the things that I really say are varied protein and just eat it consistently throughout the day. Um, in terms of carbohydrates, try to focus on whole grains, fruits and vegetables, consistently hydrate mostly with water and maybe like a black coffee and then eat until you're 80% full and then consume healthy fats. So plant oils, seeds, nuts, and fatty fish. Um, obviously that sounds pretty simple, uh, but it's not easy. So those five things are, really going to give you 80 or 90% of the benefits in, in my opinion. Um, but it's not simple. So, or it, it's not easy. It is simple, but it's not easy. So there's yeah. definitely a, a compliance aspect that comes into play and compliance is the science as uh, Lane Norton says. <laughs> yeah, no, it's certainly, it's certainly simple, but definitely not easy. And the hardest parts of it too, are, are almost like consumer knowledge really because if you just told somebody who's never bought whole foods before to just go into the grocery store and and you know you gave them just a shopping list of, of what you would get that can get very expensive very quickly um, right you know there's there's ways around this you know the, depending on the brand you buy or whether you go organic or not and there's you know debates as to how much you know organic actually matters in certain circumstances which we like won't get into here but or, or you know there's different stores you can shop there's different things you can do to make it really viable for yourself I, I think you know that's definitely possible it's just everything is set up to make it much easier to buy cheaper and less healthy food 
which you know is obvious, but is the fact. Yeah, I would say one big thing, and just to go into like kind of the organic food for a sec, I think, you know, the things that we've kind of talked about are in nutrition, pretty undeniably big boulders, right? Like those are where you're going to get the majority of your benefits from um, the things that we've listed off, but people are making millions upon millions of dollars off of small pebbles. Um, and I think a lot of the things that people really hone in on um, are small pebbles. So, you know, James already eats a great diet. So the difference between, you know, him having organic food and not having organic food, that might be another three to 5% gain that he's getting potentially. Um, but if you're only getting that three to 5% gain when your diet is otherwise trash and you're just going to Whole Foods and you're getting a bunch of, you know, terrible foods for you, but they say they're organic, like you're missing out on, you're walking past huge boulders and just picking up a bunch of pebbles. Um, other ones would be, you know, I think fasting has some benefits for people, but in general, if your diet is brutal and you fast, um, you know, I don't think that you're going to be seeing the benefits that you want to be seeing. And then other things are like even more obviously small pebbles, like alkaline water or something like that. Like that's clearly just a, a small pebble. And I don't even know if it's a pebble. It, just, it might be a psychological pebble, but it's not really doing anything for your health. Yeah. This is another one of my favorite things is uh <laughs> health food stores and, and health products i'm a total sucker for them i will buy oh, like yeah any, i'll buy any protein bar or any vegan organic snack but the point is the, the more insidious thing about those things is is people I, I think there's probably a lot of people who are misled by a lot of the claims of those types of products and really frankly not you know not to sound like such a cynic but the marketing of them as just being this you know healthy thing to be doing yourself doing for yourself but you know the reality is plenty of you know vegan organic snacks can be uh laden with sugar and other uh you know kind of nefarious ingredients yeah uh, they may be organic and and whatnot you know cane sugar is is not really any different from regular sugar and just how it impacts uh, your body and how it can impact your, your long-term health. Um, I actually just read there's a, Oatly, Oatly, uh, the oat milk company is seeing a lot of uh, backlash. Their stock has dropped considerably. Um, and there's, there's a movement now that people, are, a lot of coffee shops are reporting more people are ordering uh, dairy milk because uh I think there's been some some reports and, and news reports that have come out about some of the health claims that Oatly has made have been totally unsubstantiated. And then there's also the whole uh, seed oil issue with those for people who who follow that. Um, and so Oatly's kind of coming under some heat right now, and people are responding by just drinking regular milk, which is interesting. Yeah, and you know, I was somebody that was kind of duped by the, the anti-dairy sort of movement for a while. But, you know, I think as long as you're having high quality milk and you don't have, you know, some health condition like, uh, you know, galactosemia or um, 
like lactose or, intolerance. I was going to say, if you're just lactose intolerant, yeah, obviously yeah. it's not an option. Like, yeah, I don't think that, well, it is an option if you want to suffer through it, but yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times people kind of try to sow some fear too by saying, oh, you think that they would have studies um, saying that milk's bad, you know, the big dairy is, you know, controlling all the narrative and like, yeah, that happens to a degree, but, um, you know, I don't, yeah. And I mean, the end of the world, having a little bit of dairy, you know, I think it's even worse to be deficient in calcium and be having low bone density. I think that's going to affect you a little bit more as you age. Yeah. And I mean, we'll wrap up here in a second, but just to quickly bring it back to the concept of little versus big boulders, you can also just make an educated decision based off just human evolution what have we been drinking longer you know manufactured processed milk made from oats or, or cow's milk um it, if you're going to have just a little bit of either in your life and you want to take it to the maximum uh degree of safety the dairy is probably the better option in just terms right. of uh <laughs> how it's how it's interacted with with people up to this point so that's just another quick heuristic before you you know get lost in the weeds of all this stuff you can you can prevent yourself a lot of headaches just by yeah. kind of thinking that through that lens definitely and to wrap on this i think the funniest thing is um you know little pebble versus big boulder a lot of the people that are opting for that uh that oat milk to be healthy in uh in an effort to be healthy over the cow's milk are probably having four pumps of simple syrup in their in their coffee yeah. so <laughs> so yeah but all right we'll cool. wrap here yeah. And uh, yeah, until next time. All righty. Bye, everyone.